Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's great to have you here. Some of you may have been wondering why the pause in episodes for a few months, and here's a very simple reason. I've been doing lots of other stuff, all good stuff, like working alongside Stephanie Morehouse at Gymnastics Australia to develop the Body Positive Guidelines for Gymnastics, which is absolutely awesome and available on the Gymnastics Australia website. I've also spent some time traveling to the US to run non-diet approach workshops with Hayley Goodrich from Inspired Nutrition and joined Heather Kaplan for her Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics Symposium in Washington, D.C. So I'm sure you can understand it can feel so tempting to apologize and to fill in the blanks and offer a myriad of reasons. And the truth is, it's just kind of been a hectic time. So here we are and I'm really excited to be back. So I'm so pleased to share with you this excellent conversation I had with our colleague, Annie Goldsmith, who is a registered dietitian and owner of Second Breakfast Nutrition, a private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. Annie specializes in working with clients recovering from eating disorders, disordered eating, chronic dieting, and body image struggles. She's also the co-owner of The Art of Intentional Eating, where she facilitates support groups and size-inclusive yoga classes, grounded in the health at every size and intuitive eating philosophies. Annie is super passionate about offering non-diet weight-inclusive care and is grateful for the opportunity to hold space for those on their recovery journeys. So in this episode, Annie and I share our passion about acceptance and commitment therapy, otherwise called ACT, and how we can apply it so beautifully in dietetic practice. For me, ACT provides such a solid, compassionate framework, which fits so nicely with health at every size and body inclusive work. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And now that I'm back at home in Australia for a while, you can definitely expect more episodes coming your way. Thanks for being here. Hello, Annie, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is amazing to have you here. Thank you so much, Fiona. It is really, really cool to be here. Yes. So um, you and I have connected a couple of times, mostly through our very dear friend, Marcy Evans. And it's been such a pleasure to hang out with you and get to know you and get to know your work. And you are somebody who is not only really generous across lots of different spaces, but you make really some really thoughtful um, and heartfelt contributions, both in online spaces and in listservs. And your your passion for doing weight inclusive, health at every size aligned work just comes through like a lightning bolt in all your communication. It's just something that I really admire about you that you have this way of communicating with kindness and yet with clarity. 
So that's what I just wanted to a little bit introduce you in that way, that that's what I really admire about you. Oh, well, I really appreciate that. Sometimes I, I think about, I, I'm so passionate about health at every size and clearly that comes through. And sometimes I wonder if it feels like a lot sort of in the way it's conveyed. So it always means a lot when that sort of reflected back is something that's a strength. Yes, most definitely. And sometimes just laying it out is going to be the clearest and kindest way that we can communicate, especially with one another as well. You know, I know you are a very, very busy person. You run a practice, you're a parent, uh, you're juggling a million things. So sometimes we don't always have the space to be couching it in, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to be softening around the edges too much, right? <laughs> That's true. Sometimes you just got to say what needs to be said. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. So Annie, tell us a little bit about how you've come to where you are in your career. So I did not begin my career trajectory as a dietitian. Um, my initial career path, I really wanted to be a neuroscientist. And my undergraduate degree was in brain and cognitive sciences. And I actually did spend some time postgraduate working in some research labs. Um, what drew me to that field was that, you know, neuroscience is sort of this intersection between psychology and biology. And it's just that space where, you know, our physical selves and our emotional and social and cultural selves can sort of intersect. And I just found that so fascinating. Um, what I did not love was working in research labs. <laughs> it is a pretty isolating um, way to spend your time or it can be. And so I went back to school to become a dietitian. And I don't know that I could have articulated it at the time, but I came to understand that what drew me to this field is very similar to what drew me to neuroscience, which is that it's very much an intersection of, you know, there's all the biology and the chemistry of nutrition science. And it is so interconnected and intersected with our emotions and our culture and our kind of psychological selves. And I think that's probably what drew me to this work in particular, but it's just so interesting. Yeah, isn't that fascinating how the, how, a, how the similar foundation that took you into neurobiology also brought you to dietetics? So in terms of kind of the social justice orient, orientation of health at every size, um, what is it about, you know, equity and care and, um, and people's lived experiences that feel really relevant to the work that you do today? I think that it just has always made sense to me. Like, I'm, I'm a pretty sensitive person. Um, to the point where, you know, I think I've always just been kind of aware that the world is kind of an unfair place. And I think as a younger person, I didn't really know how to like make sense of that or to articulate that. And I was really angry a lot of the time, just sort of looking around and kind of seeing like there's just all this suffering um, and feeling really sort of like absorbing it, but not really knowing what to do with that. Um, and so, you know, being in this field, has, I think, has actually been so healing for me in many, personally in many ways because it gives such a framework for that. But 
I just love that Hayes brings in the context of the world that we live in. And, you know, it's not all about everything can just be okay if you decide it's going to be okay. Like we have to grapple with the reality of what's happening. And that doesn't mean that you have to just be despairing of it, but certainly not ignoring of that either. Um, so it just, it seems to address the reality of the world. And, and that allows people to confront what is real and so that they can find acceptance and move forward from that place. Yeah, I love that. You articulated that so beautifully. And so what are the kind of primary populations um, or communities that you're currently working with? So I work, you know, in private practice in the community. So I see people of all ages, genders. Um, I will say the the folks who I tend to just sort of attract or, or, or really connect with, and it seems to be just a really good fit, are women kind of in maybe their 30s to 60s. It just seems to be, um, and that's a big generalization, but it just seems to be a group that I just really love working with. Um, I think so many of them are ready to give up dieting. Um, I think so many of them are ready to hear these messages. And so it just makes the work so rich um, and rewarding. But certainly I enjoy working with all types of people. You were mentioning to me before, Annie, that you've started doing some groups. And um, when you were mentioning that, your whole face lit up when you were describing groups and you were saying how fantastic that experience is. So um, for, for a lot of people listening, they may not have had experience facilitating groups. So I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, the differences between individual kind of consultations or facilitation and then group-based facilitation. And what what is it about groups that feels so amazing to you? Uh, I love working with groups because it is such a healing environment. You know, sitting, what really, um, I started um, a practice with a colleague of mine who's a therapist and we do kind of only group work in that practice. And the reason that we felt so drawn to do that was because so many conversations we're having over and over individually were clients saying, I am just so alone in this. There is nobody who gets it. You're the only person I can talk to about it. And, you know, we'd kind of encourage people to go out in their lives. And, you know, that's not always safe for, for people to even talk about what they're doing, you know, in terms of embracing a, a non-diet approach. And so just really feeling passionate about creating a safe environment for people to connect about how hard this can be. And, you know, another piece of it that also feels really relevant to me. And I think you talked recently to Anna Lutz about this, but um, she did the embodied recovery training. Um, I am also doing that training. I've done level one and I um, am looking to start level two in the fall. And, you know, so much about healing trauma is in connection with other people and in that relational experience. And so we can provide that as individuals, but it is a whole nother level when you're being held by a group of people who really understand like in community. And so it's just, I mean, it's just so incredible. I just love it. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I must say I've had a, quite a similar experience to you in working with um, in working with people who are in recovery from their eating disorder or also in recovery from a diet culture disorder, shall we say, which is very real and it's very valid. And, it, and sometimes it's no less serious either in the way that it impacts in our life quality, really, in, in, in lots oh, yeah. of ways. You know, I think it's it's really it's really awful to witness the the pain and suffering that comes from the the influence and impact of, of diet culture messaging and weight stigmatizing you know weight stigmatizing experiences in healthcare for example oh my goodness yes yeah. so so being in a group with others who um, may or may not share your your exact direct experience but have an understanding about um, how uh, diet culture or um, experiences with food eating and body image really influence our lives is a really powerful way to address shame I've found that um, you know shame being this um, construct this um, whole school of thoughts and feelings which find which find themselves being enacted in in, in often harmful ways towards ourselves that being in community and being in the presence of other people who are also able to share their experiences, you can see the shame in the room begin to be, first of all, witnessed, mm -hmm. and then to be, second of all, perhaps normalised, and then third of all, for it to be kind of, um, I don't want to say dissipated, as in it just disappears because it doesn't, but witnessed seen as validated, seen as valid, I should say, so validated, and then held. Mm. You know, so everybody holds each other's experience with such compassion that I feel like it opens up opportunities where people are like, oh, I don't, oh, I don't, I don't have to feel this way or I don't have to be enacting these, um, these, um, these thoughts, these urges. You know, I could I could not agree more. I I think you stated that really well. That the the shame reduction piece of that is very much a part of it. Um, and I also the one other thing that I notice happens a lot in group two is the humor. Like, and it's humor around stuff that's pretty painful sometimes and it's not humor as like a deflection or like a defense mechanism it's truly like humor in if we don't laugh we'll cry and we all understand this and just like a shared sense of the ridiculousness of you know some of these situations and I I think that is also incredibly healing I think so too, because a lot, as you say, a lot of this stuff is pretty heavy, so to speak. You know, it can be pretty deep, it can be heavy, it can be long-term, especially if there's trauma entangled in there as well. So like you say, you know, um, humour, uh, humour when, you know, not used as a deflection strategy is, is actually really healing because it overts, like you say, almost the ridiculous. It's like, oh, I don't have to feel like a fool for being drawn into these diet culture messages. I can locate this outside myself and see it for the ridiculous that it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And everyone gets the joke because everyone's been there. Yes. I'm not alone, you know. It, this is such a shared experience. 
Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm curious because a lot of people, um, a lot of colleagues of ours would love to run groups, but might not have the the knowledge, the skills, the opportunity, the the collaboration. Do you have any kind of tips around you know how you might start a a, a group or what what you would need to kind of get something going in your community? That's a great question. I think the first piece is just know that it takes time. Um, I think we ran our first, so we do two kind of things. We do what we call our 10 series. Um, so actually my colleague, her name is Melissa Elder. Um, we sat down and we wrote a curriculum um, and that took probably about six months <clears throat> and we created like an instructor manual and then the, the client manual. And then our first group was three people <laughs> and sometimes Two of them wouldn't show up. <laughs> um, and it's, I'm trying to remember when we ran our first group. It was over two years ago. And we are just in a place, we're just in a place where community group, group is really growing. Like we're feeling like our feet are sort of established in this group work. So I think part of it is just knowing that this just takes time and being okay with that. Um, but then also really thinking about, I mean, we really spent time to think about what it is we wanted to do, like what our mission was, what the content we wanted to be sharing. And so, yeah, just taking your time with it and not having it be your primary thing, just knowing it's got to kind of grow organically, at least in my experience. I'm sure there are groups that can just sort of pop up overnight, but that was not for us, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely concur with that, definitely. That was probably mirrors very much my experience where um, I also collaborate with a therapist because I think, um, I do think running a group on your own is not only unwise, it's potentially unsafe as well. So having some co some co-facilitation is really important so I'm going to loop back to that in just a second because I want to hear your thoughts on on one thing okay. also I just really appreciate you saying you know be patient and also be clear be consistent be prepared because sometimes I feel like you know we are so passionate about this and I have no doubt at all like for example the curriculum that you developed would have been incredible and you would have given a lot of time thought attention and energy to you know put into that curriculum and it's not um it's probably um unsurprising that people are like see it as quote-unquote easier to go do a 12-week challenge at your local gym versus something that actually requires us to dig into some pretty deep stuff. Um, you no know, healing, healing takes a lot of courage. So um, although I am, um, can I say I'm unsurprised about the low numbers in your first group? That was exactly our experience and sometimes still is, you know, as people, you know, kind of come and go and um, you know, community messages change and all kinds of things. So um, I really like that, that message around, you know, persistence and consistency and just be really clear about what you want to do with this. Annie, I wanted to loop back to ask you about co-facilitation. Um, what have you found to be the most powerful elements of co-facilitation? 
Well, certainly just having two perspectives because we all come at this a little bit differently. And I think different ways of framing things are gonna resonate differently for different people. But certainly as a dietitian, I mean, I don't know if there's anybody on my caseload right now who I see who does not have a therapist, like maybe one person because, and I'll tell people, you know, it's like, I don't wanna be sitting here with you opening Pandora's box and then not have the ability to have you get the support that you need when things come up. Because the way that I approach things, things are gonna come up that are gonna be you know, potentially triggering or like you said, even potentially unsafe. Um, and so I think that's just really important for having a therapist. And then also um, <clears throat> in a group setting too, just but in, in that sort of group dynamic and the relational aspects, I think having a therapist who can look at those dynamics and be a support around that is also incredibly helpful. Yeah. Have, have you also found it helpful in terms of your own um, understanding your own facilitation skills to have somebody else there as an observer and that you can do that for them too, that you're able to then come together at the end of a group, for example, and not only talk about the participants and the kind of the more the content, but then also the context and, um, and to do some more professional or self-reflection on kind of group facilitation skills. You know, that is a fantastic idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that we have, <clears throat> I will say Melissa and I are, we're, we're incredibly close friends and we, we're, we're constantly sort of in a back and forth. Um, you know, we also share space in our individual practices. So there's a lot of, so I, I think there is a lot of growth and learning from each other just through sort of that constant interaction. But I think formally sort of sitting down and saying, hey, let's kind of do some per, like official professional feedback around how that went um, is a fantastic idea and I'm going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, the only reason I raise it is because I've actually found it really useful when, for example, my co-facilitator has been doing what we call the primary facilitation role um, mm -hmm. to observe the group and then to observe the dynamics between group members and between group members and my co-facilitator and vice versa. And just to notice things like change in energy, change in tone, change in um, body, the way the bodies are showing up in the room. I think that is incredibly interesting. And, and as we know, when you're doing, when you're a single facilitator, you can't do all the jobs. You can't kind of do the facilitation mind the kind of energy and dynamics in the relational space, um, uh, timekeeping, um, I don't know, staying on top of content, like it's really, it's really hard, it's a lot. I, I, that is, yes, I think those are all such salient points, like to have someone sort of officially taking on that role of observation, um, is inc incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I haven't done it, but <laughs> definitely think that's a really exciting thing to think about incorporating. Yeah. I, I have just, I found it really has supercharged my uh, insight oriented facilitation work, I guess, mm -hmm. that, you know, to have someone being like, 
oh, I, I noticed that when you, um, for example, when you said such and such and then the other person responded with blah, blah, that you actually, your tone really changed and I wonder how that altered the energy. Like, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't yes. see that. <laughs> Literally. That's, that is very, very cool. Yeah. So anyway, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That, to let you know. I know. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I love chatting with other groups. It's like there is so much value and share experiences. I love really Yeah. Um, so another shared passion of ours is um, the modality or therapeutic style or however you want to call it, or model of, not a model of care, it's a therapeutic style, I guess you would say. Um, obviously, the therapy shortened to act. So rather than ACT, um, acceptance and commitment therapy is colloquially, colloquially known as ACT. Um, and I know that um, when I first announced that I was doing some workshops here in Australia, um, that you reached out and you're like, oh my God, I love ACT so much. And I'm like, ooh, okay, you and I need to talk on a podcast about ACT. <laughs> so, um, so tell me a little bit about why ACT feels so resonant to you, especially in the section of vitality. And, and recovery. I think what I love, there's a couple of things that I really love about ACT. One is that I find it to be very hopeful while at the same time not being Pollyanna, if that makes sense. Um, I think there can be some stuff in the recovery space that feels a little bit like um I'll say to clients like it kind of feels like like blowing unicorns and rainbows up your ass you know yes yes <laughs> um and going back to what we were talking about in terms of context and what I act is very big on context which is also I think why it kind of fits but when we're asking people to kind of be so positive um, within the context of their recovery, especially people in larger bodies, we kind of erase their experience of oppression, of stigmatization. And I think ACT is a modality that has a lot of space for that, while also offering some real ways of navigating that, of coping with it, and of moving forward to ultimately live a life of real deep meaning and value, which I think is, oh, for me, a way that I really think about what recovery is all about, but it doesn't mean a life free from hardship or things that are painful, and it doesn't it, it doesn't ask that of people. And so I just find it to be something that feels very authentic. And so it just really resonates. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. Oh, I, I agree with everything you've said. I think it's a, it's a modality where we are invited to be with our painful 
and difficult, challenging thoughts and experiences and sensations. So, of course, I was probably drawn to act through my mindfulness practice because I'm like, ooh, it's a it's a mindfulness um, aligned or mindfulness oriented modality. Um, so, I that's the aspect of it that I really like. So, unlike, for example, reframing, and there are is a place for reframing, um, mm. you know, as per classic cognitive behavioral therapy kind of methods. Um, but what I have found is that when it comes to things like, yes, stigmatization and bias and oppression, marginalization, that you can't reframe that shit. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's not about reframing. It's about, um, it's almost, it has a DBT flavor to it too, that acceptance and change, um, which I really appreciate. Um, because although change is often part of recovery in lots of ways, um, being able to be with our kind of our, our painful experiences um, with courage and with authenticity um, allows us the space to understand our capacity mm-hmm. um, and to draw on our resources, and we all have resources. Um, so I just see it as an enormous privilege, actually, to be with people as we're working in this modality. Um, and as you say, the values, I love the values part of it too, the values-based living and, and the way that that can bring deep meaning to our lives, that our lives are not just birth to death and suffering in between, that it's, you know, so, um, is it okay, Annie, if we loop back for a moment, if I was a real newbie to ACT, Actually, I, I, I kind of I get it on a broad perspective. I've heard of it. Um, how would you explain it to a colleague, to a dietetic colleague, if somebody said, look, what is ACT? I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it is. How would you explain it? I will do my best. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> I'll you know preface this by saying that ACT can get really heady and complicated, especially like the first intro I had to it. So I went to an act training with Steve Hayes back a few years ago, and he's quite an interesting person. (laughs) Um, But he will get down in the weeds of what's called relational frame theory, which is sort of the foundation of the act model, and it can get really complicated. So when I look at this, I try to simplify, especially in the work that we're doing, we don't need, I think in the dietetic scope of practice, I take a lot and I'll leave a lot because um, a lot of it doesn't really fit in, in our work. So ACT is considered a third wave um, of like behavioral therapy. So second wave would be considered CBT and then third wave is um, DBT and ACT and essentially, so there are a lot of similarities with CBT. I, a place where they really differ is in CBT, a big, and this is my understanding of it, so I'm totally open to, I'm interested in kind of hearing um, your thoughts on this. In CBT, there's a big focus on reframing our thoughts or challenging our thoughts or replacing our thoughts. And so there's this underlying assumption that if we can just reframe our thoughts, we can change them and then they won't affect us in the same way, which will then lead to behavior change. 
acceptance and commitment therapy takes a different perspective, which is that thoughts are not really something we have a whole lot of control over. We all have these stories and these narratives that we've um, just sort of evolved almost um, from birth and experiences that we've had. And I think a lot of these thoughts also came are kind of here because at some point in our life they served a function and that they served a function that was really rooted in survival. So for example, if I um, was told as a child that you're not really acceptable in a larger body, the thought you need to lose weight and it's you really need to lose weight or you're, or you're completely unacceptable and you're a failure, that thought really serves a purpose because it, it keeps you doing the thing that's going to gain acceptance from your primary caregiver, right? So those thoughts get embedded and they don't just go away. And I, a lot of clients that I'll talk to, you know, they'll do a lot of this work, but then those thoughts are still showing up and affecting their behavior. And so the way that ACT approaches this is, okay, if we can't make these thoughts go away, what we really need to do is accept that they're there and kind of let them come along for the ride. And acceptance in acceptance and commitment therapy doesn't necessarily mean resignation to things being shitty, <laughs> to the way that they feel now. It's accepting what is and pursuing change from that place of accepting reality. And so if we can accept, okay, these difficult thoughts are gonna show up for me, how can I change the way I relate to the thoughts that show up? And how can I move forward with behaviors that are really aligned with my values so that I can live a life of meaning and purpose? Um, so I think that's just a big distinction is how, the, how ACT approaches thoughts. And I think that's a pretty revolutionary thing um, and pretty radical. Um, and then other pieces of ACT mentioned kind of, there's this acceptance piece um, and then there's the tools that it gives us to change the way we relate to our thoughts, which is diffusion, which hopefully we can spend some time talking about because I love diffusion. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love diffusion. So, so tell us a little bit. I mean, those of you who know me, um, Annie included will know I'm super practical. I'm all about, you know, so how does this look? How does this feel? How can we bring this? into our practice. So when we talk about diffusion, um, we're essentially talking about creating a space, aren't we? You know, between the thought as in words in our mind, essentially, you know, words or images or sentences or the way that thoughts kind of pop up um, and creating a space. And this is where mindfulness comes in, of course, is creating an, an observer an observer perspective so that we can notice, you know, when these things come up. And, and many of you listening, even in our person, it's actually been quite revolutionary for me personally as well, being able to notice um, when my thoughts, sensations, um, emotions are shifting, um, especially when I'm with somebody else who's having a tough experience and I need to just be responsible for, for myself in that moment. Um, so, Diffusion uh, is, I guess, a skill set 
that comes along with some pretty neat tools that we can use. So I'm curious to hear about what are your favourite kind of tools and tools Fusion. A place I love to start um, is with, I'm noticing I'm having the thought. So essentially, should we kind of just talk about what? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, that's my five. Yeah. So let's say a client is very fused with a thought. And um, often I'll give the example, you know, when you're fused with a thought, imagine two pieces of metal fused together where you, you can't even necessarily tell where one ends and another begins. Um, or another great way to do this experientially in session is to actually have the client hold their hands right in front of their eyes and kind of say, this is, this is you, if, you're, if your thoughts are your hands, this is you fused with your thoughts. Like they're so up close that you can't really do much of anything because this is all that you see. Um, and so, like you said, the, the goal is to create some space. And so, what I might ask somebody to do is call to mind a thought, not one that's super distressing, but one that they can kind of tolerate and ask them to get a little bit fused up with it. And so they're kind of holding it. And this is where, you know, bringing in um, other pieces of mindfulness, like what do you notice in your body when you're feeling that, when you're holding that thought, when you're feeling fused up with it, just noticing what it's like. And then having them add two phrases in front of it. So let's say the thought is, I am not okay at my size. Okay. So you'd have them say, I'm having the thought that I'm not okay at my size. And then add the phrase in front of it, I'm noticing. So I'm noticing I'm having the thought that I am not okay at this size. And what that does is it, it literally creates space, but so often in, in doing this, it's sometimes really incredible the experience that a client will have, they will feel that shift in their body. Like they will feel that thought actually distancing as they create the space with that phrase. And it gives them the ability, not that the thought is gone, but now that there's more space for them to have some choice, to feel a sense of empowerment of, I actually get to choose what to do here as opposed to I have the thought and immediately it is truth, it is a mandate and I must just follow through with, with whatever that thought is telling me. Um, so that's, that's the I'm, ha I'm noticing I'm having the thought diffusion. Yeah, I love, that's actually my favorite for sure. Okay. Um, I'm noticing I'm having the thought. Um, my second favorite is thanks mind. I love thanks mind, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is, kind of you know to use your example so I'll, I mean I'll use a different example because um, your example your thought was very polite I often find it really hilarious when people give me a like a thought that's really polite it's like um uh like something like yeah I'm um I'm uh, for example you know I'm not okay at my size I'm like is that what it actually sounds like in your mind and people are like yeah no it more has expletives in there usually expletives and really 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 mean like super mean and I always say look if it's not okay to verbalize then you know, we can work with something that feels uh it feels accessible in terms of verbalizing because often when people when when thoughts pop up that are actually really like they're nasty and nasty nasty thoughts that actually verbalizing them can increase shame for people 
but I just wanted to avert that any any kind of polite thought that I mean we know for ourselves like if I say to myself you're an effing idiot you know that that would be a thought that pops up for me at times and yet even when I just said it then I just got a pang in my chest of oh that's really actually really, really mean that I would say else you know so so also being realistic that when people give you a polite thought it's usually so coming back to thanks mind so thanks mind is just simply um is simply acknowledging a really common thought that pops up um and and in particular i like thanks mind for ones that are just ridiculous and unhelpful you know like oh you're late again thanks mind yep great yep. thank you thanks for that so it kind of like we were talking about before i find thanks mind really helpful as a quick um a quick uh interception yes so i'm noticing but by even saying thanks mind i'm noticing and then i'm able to levitate it a little bit able to just think yeah thanks like no thanks <laughs> i'm able to just create that little bit of distance um so those are the two um that we can help our clients um in groups perhaps because actually beautifully in groups people come up with all these examples everyone's like yes oh my god that's me too um and the me too thing even though it's you know, become this um, global movement is something that you and i have been hearing years in them so it's very very powerful so yeah there you go there are our two favorite diffusion of thoughts skills and tools um is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, to diffusion of thoughts at all well, there's one more that I've actually done in a group setting, and I think it worked really well in a group setting, which was having people write their thought on a piece of paper and then take, you know, like crayons or markers or whatever and transform it into a picture. Ah, oh, lovely. And it just, I mean, it's about not getting rid of that thought, but again, transforming it. Um, and and changing how you're relating to it. And it's really powerful to see what people come up with because I think some people, that sort of art part of them, that creative part is really linked to their ability to heal. Um, and then also in a group setting, again, seeing how people react to the, the pictures that people come up with can be just really interesting. Um, but I think the other thing that was coming to my mind when you were saying that was like, how simple is that? you know it's it's such a simple thing but it's so impactful mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and it also develops lots of long-term skills as well given that thoughts will come and go for our whole lifetime and given that difficult thoughts will arise and difficult emotions will show up for us these are life skills that, that are transferable so if we have a life experience which means that our body changes or that our ability um, our ability changes or we have a diagnosis or we have a change in relationship or anything really that we're able to transfer or translate exactly these skills over into other experience as well so I think it's a it's a pretty decent investment actually in long-term mental health I would completely agree mm. um, so 
some of the other, so the kind of core skills are around diffusion of difficult um, thoughts, diffusion of difficult feelings, which is a whole kind of modern ball game, um, or a whole other skill set, I should say, um, and then kind of values-based, values-based living. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about diffusion of difficult emotions. This is something that may or may not be kind of in our wheelhouse or in our skill set, um, but that can actually be incredibly powerful. So um, I imagine, I'm guessing here, I could be wrong, that when you were doing the embodied recovery course, I imagine you noticed some stress over there amongst kind of the, 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 the relational and the embodied and then that. I, they fit together really, really well. Um, give me more of what you're thinking of. Yeah. So, um, a lot of the challenges that I find in our clients who are in recovery, whether that's from an eating disorder or chronic dieting or um, really deep, difficult um, relationship with their body or and and or have also experienced significant oppression, stigmatization in our in our world, um, that the the thoughts side of things can be a little bit more accessible than the emotion side of things and the way that emotions show up can be really tricky for people, particularly if they have experienced trauma of any description. Remembering that dieting itself can be embodied as trauma. It's not just developmental trauma or complex trauma or PTSD or acute experiences. You know, the body can't tell the difference between food insecurity and neglect and dieting it, it can't tell so it will respond how it's going to respond right so anyway that was a segue <laughs> I was on my I was on my soapbox there you know I love my soapbox Annie um oh, yes I'm right there with you <laughs> yeah yes you are that's great um so referring to like the physical sense like yeah okay I'm, yeah more yeah. more kind of the sensations and shifting those sensations and what act kind of says what act not says offers us in terms of skills around around understanding our emotions um, and how they kind of show up in the body and then kind of how we can build skills around that. So I think if you're kind of referring to using diffusion around um, physical sensations and emotions in the body, I, I think one that lends itself well is anxiety. Um, anxiety is so physically felt in the body. And so often when we're feeling anxiety, and especially within the embodied recovery um, kind of framework where essentially if we are in an anxiety response or a fight or flight response, and that's really uncomfortable in the body, what we want to do is bring our body back into the window of tolerance where we're not feeling all of those uncomfortable physical sensations. And we all know eating disorder behaviors are incredibly useful um, you know, in one way of resourcing the body to bring it into the window. And so um, just as we may notice and accept that difficult thoughts are there and that even though they feel really distressing, they can't necessarily harm us and kind of take that same approach with the physical sensations that come along with 
distressing emotions. So if I'm really, really anxious and I feel like, wow, if I was just to purge, I would feel so much better. Um, being able to take that observer stance, that mindfulness, um, using those mindfulness skills to notice, okay, let me name what I'm feeling. I'm feeling a tightness in my chest. I'm feeling my heart's beating really fast. I'm feeling my cheeks are really flushed. So we're noticing it without judgment and you might even name it. Um, that feels like anxiety to me. That feels really distressing to me. Um, and using even that same technique, right? Like I'm noticing that these sensations are present and creating some distance from the idea that they're actually going to harm me. Um, and so that we can sit with them because we know that eventually they will settle on their own. Or um, what's really, really neat about um, this sort of somatic stuff is it actually gives a whole other toolbox of things that we can do to, to help our body come into the window of tolerance that don't involve things that are harming. Um, so it might be putting a weighted lap pad or a weighted blanket on. It might be smelling calming essential oils. Um, it might be asking a partner for a hug. Uh, there's all kinds of ways we can calm our nervous system without using eating disorder behaviors. But we have to have the distance and space to even be able to say, oh, I could do something different. Um, and I think diffusion gives us that space to make a different choice. Is that where you were talking about? Yeah, absolutely. No, that was beautifully said. So in other words, we're kind of using some of this similar strategies around mm -hmm. noticing and naming um, and, and creating that distance in other, words, in other words, the diffusion. So similar to the way that you spoke about um, diffusion of thoughts, you know, if you were to bring your open, two open palms towards your face and, you know, that's the representation of fusion with thoughts, then a, a fusion with emotions would be maybe, maybe, it, maybe the thought would be, shit, 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 I, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, you know, and the, that might be anxiety in the, uh, in the body. So first of all, again, noticing, second of all, locating and naming. So, I'm feeling X in my X, in my Y, I should say. <laughs> you know, I'm feeling <laughs> tightness and heat in my chest. That is anxiety, like naming it. And then what I really liked about what you said about embodied recovery skills is it then opens up, even if it's just a micro space, because it, it, it's often not like, oh, I've got so much space now for choice. It often doesn't show up like that. It often is like a micro space where we literally just have this very small opportunity to do something different. Um, so whether that's, like you say, a weighted blanket, using our senses, um, shifting shifting where our body is in space, getting some fresh air, you know, doing some techniques around maybe it's breathing or doing some other kind of grounding work that we would do maybe with our therapist or with in yoga or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that. It's beautiful. It has a different... Um, it's it, the complementary skill set, isn't it? You know, to mm -hmm. to diffusion of difficult thoughts. It's more working with more working with um, the body. The other thing I wanted to add to, to your really beautiful explanation there is it doesn't name thoughts or emotions as, as bad. It um, it names them as being um, perhaps I'm going to say un helpful might be a good 
way, although for some people that might not be a good kind of word to use. But, you know, in ACT, we ask ourselves, is this helping me move in the direction that I wish for my life? And in saying that, one caveat we need to be really careful of is, of course, that ACT can get very entwined with diet culture if we're not careful. Right? There have been books written about ACT weight loss, and it's like, no, not the point. Don't, don't, please. It's funny that you say that. There's, there's a podcast that I really like, and I would recommend it to people who um, want to learn more about ACT. It's called ACT in Context. I don't know if you've oh, ever. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a six episodes that give the, so there's six core, um, there's, a, there's a name for them, but core concepts of elements yep yeah and there's there's an episode for each of them and the one about value I believe it's the one about values is the person they had on was the person who wrote the book on act for weight loss oh and my I was god so mad because I couldn't <laughs> listen to it I just had to turn it off but I was ah oh. oh my god out of all the things we could be working <laughs> on in life uh-huh. are you serious no yeah <sighs> It can, and that is one thing that makes me so sad is that ACT has not fused um, with Haze, that it has not, and it is a modality that works so almost seamlessly and perfectly with Haze um, because of the way that it gives tools to navigate living you know, in a world where things are really, really painful mm-hmm. and it, and it just hasn't gotten there. <laughs> yeah. I must say, I really like the book by Margaret Berman, um, which is, oh, the title of it is escaping me now. Um, um, oh my goodness. Okay. What I'm going to do is just apologize here and now to Margaret um, because <laughs> she is an incredible um, clinician and has done a lot of work in the intersection between, or, or not in the intersection, but in the application of acceptance and commitment therapy um, and into health at every size, health at every size paradigm and, and practice principles. I really like her book actually. So I'm going to put a link to that in our notes. Um, and with apologies, <laughs> my brain is just functioning right now. So thanks, mine. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, mine. <laughs> um, all right, so I guess one of the last, it's not the, 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 the only last one, but you know, one of the last ones is around value. So um, you know, I guess you know, taking, let's take a little brief toe dip into values and what that has to do with, um, with um, acceptance therapy and, and um, how we might integrate that into um, people's recovery journey. Well, the way that I conceptualize this when I talk to people about it is values aren't necessarily goals um, as much as they are a really more encompassing ways that guide how we show up in the world and so they might be like bigger guiding principles so for example one of my I figured out two of my three core values I still can't come up with the third Um, But my first is definitely authenticity. 
And so <clears throat> when I am going around in my life, it feels really important to me that I'm showing up in a way that is authentic. It may not, now I may make mistakes and show up in a way where I'm being authentic, but maybe it still is not a way of interacting that ultimately ends up being very helpful, um, but at least it's authentic. <laughs> and so it, it, it really, it, it, can, it can guide the way that you show up in all ways. And so then we can, you know, work with our clients to say, okay, these are some of your values. And I know Marcy's talked a lot about this, about really spending time with clients kind of looking at, a, and you have as well, I know in um, your body image training, kind of coming up with a big list of potential values and which you can find online in many places and really asking clients to spend some time narrowing that down um, and then asking how the way that they treat their body, nourish their body, the way that they show up in social interactions because of the way that food is you know, in the mix, how that either aligns with their values and moves them in the direction of their values or moves them away from their values. And it's a nice way to frame the conversation of, well, what is the action that you would take in that situation that really aligns with your value? And that can guide the action that is going to be maybe the goal that they set. Mm that particular session or whatever it might be I really like yeah I really love that explanation that is that's a beautiful summary I think it also the one thing I really like about values is that a lot of our work can get it's pretty full-on like a lot of the work that we do and values almost sometimes feels like a breather it feels like a just a little um it's something that we can all relate to it feels like we're coming back to what matters um and uh, and as we know, you know, the people who are listening who have experienced an eating disorder, who have experienced significant mental health or a lot of pain and suffering in their lives, that um, coming back to matters can us reprieve from our suffering. Um, maybe not so much a reprieve, that's probably not exactly fair to say, but more the spaciousness that allows us to connect with our own resources in order to be alongside our pain and still pursue meaning in our lives. That's probably more accurate. Yes, I, I think so. And I think, I think around that too, it can also be a way in session when we it, things are getting mired down in the, oh, I can't do this. This is too mm -hmm. hard. It, it can also serve as a way to sometimes get unstuck. Yes. Yep. Is, or at the very least, kind of help people build a little bit of dissonance between what is really important to them and then what they're actually doing. Yes. And, and but we, we get to help people show themselves the dissonance versus pointing it out by just talking through what are your values, asking how does this behavior align with it. So they're really laying out the discrepancy as opposed to us like hitting them over the head with it. Exactly. Exactly. So we can kind of offer back, you know, what they have um, identified as, as what can help 
them uh, what are the values that are helping them move in it in the direction they wish to go um, rather than offering a solution or getting into that awful fix it kind of situation that we can sometimes find ourselves in yeah can I tell you a funny thing about values one of the very very first discussion that Marcy Evans and I had <laughs> um, when we very when we met years ago now was about values and um, and I said to her I said to her, you know, I did this a review values as part of a training course or something, something. And I said, you know, I was narrowing it down to 10 and then I narrowed it down to five. And I said, and then I had to narrow it down to three. And I said to her, um, so as it turns out, I ditched family, but I kept fun. <laughs> <laughs> and she laughed and laughed because she said exactly the same thing that happened to her, which is like, Oh well, connectedness, that'll do. Family, bye. <laughs> Picking three is hard. Picking three is so hard. Are you kidding? Particularly when you're when it when you're cutting off, feels like you're saying you don't care. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh exactly. my gosh. When I was clients, they look at you just they're they're just like you're not really making me do this. Like this is no, no. It's very mean. It's very mean. <laughs> Annie, it has, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. This has been a very different episode um, in terms of really getting into a modality and how it intersects with the work that we do. And um, it's just been so interesting chatting with you and, um, you know, sharing lots of these ideas. And I really appreciate that you've given so many examples of, um, of ways that these, um, of ways in which these different ideas and elements of ACT can, can um, can show up for us in our practice and how we can maybe go and do some work ourselves so thank you thank you thank you so much thank you for having me this is really fun yeah it has it's been awesome and i really look forward to connect, staying connected with you and hopefully we get to um you know hang out in person really soon here's hoping i won't be traveling to australia anytime soon so you'll have to come to the states <laughs> oh what a bummer come on i'd love to i'd love I to <laughs> One day. Okay, I'll chat to you soon, Annie. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.